Hi, this is David Benjamin Tomlinson. I play Linus on Star Trek Discovery, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use the voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. In the year 2021 of our Eldritch Gods, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That right there is the very handsome Mr. Horsley. Look at you. Oh, thank you. pretty. So gato. So gato. So pretty. <laughs> I, even, I even brushed my hair today. And today <laughs> on the show, well, it's David Benjamin Tomlinson, isn't it? It is, and it is continuing our our uh, our current uh, our current get of uh, talking to people from Star Trek as we love it. It's the conquering of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, <laughs> he he plays Linus Cesarian on Star Trek Discovery, and uh, Jeff sat down with him, had a chat with him. The dude, this dude's awesome, man. Uh, he got a lot to say. He's uh, and Discovery again. If you haven't watched it, it's an amazing show. It's great, and uh, it's it's so good. It's so good, but. You know, I just want to say before you get into it, uh, not only is this an, a great interview with a Star Trek actor, but if you come back tomorrow, we have another great Star Trek actor. And we've got more like seemingly every week right now, which is awesome. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. If we get the uh, – God, I can't, can't remember her real name. The 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 girl playing Michael. Sonequa Martin-Green is her name. I will be on that interview in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. She's like one of my favorite new characters. She's Star like Trek. my favorite Star Trek yeah. character right now. Yeah, she's awesome. I mean, yeah, all these guys are just amazing. Uh, I've listened to this David interview already because I saw it there, and I'm like, oh, man, we've had so many Star Trek guys on. I got to listen to some of these you know, more than waiting for them to come out because that's the beauty of, of you and I owning this podcast. We can listen to the stuff whenever we want. <laughs> we get sneak previews. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> So I, but this is this is a lot of fun. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Yeah. So what do you say we sit back and listen to to David and Jeff in their own words? Boom. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show we had the fantastic David Benjamin Tomlinson. How's it going, sir? Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well. And I was saying, you have a fantastic mic, it sounds like. You're perfectly clear. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, 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 I've upped my mic game. <laughs> and can, do you want to give a plug for the whatever you're using? Because it's amazing. Oh, sure. It is a Blue Yeti Nano. Oh, damn. I mean, I'm not even sure what kind of... I have an Audio Technica, and now I'm extremely jealous of you. 
<laughs> oh my! I, well, I looked into the auto Audio Technica. This seemed like a simpler. This is a plug and play, very straightforward mic. And I was like, I like everything that this does. <laughs> so I've been doing some. I always do research on my guests before they come on the show, and mm-hmm. obviously, I look. I, I looked you up the best the best I could. So, mm-hmm. when did you know you wanted to be a performer and writer? Oh. Very early, very early. I didn't understand it in the beginning, but the urge was definitely there. And creativity was always was sort of like a, a passenger with me. I was a very, very creative kid and sometimes would find it very frustrating because I didn't know how to, to, to let it out and then sort of like figured out the best way to do that. When I, I, I went through a, a tricky period, I grew up in a, a small town out of the city and so when i started when i was a teenager and i i started to to put the pieces together that i was gay i was i had sort of a confidence dive about what i could and couldn't do because i was so conflicted about who i was and so i kind of undercut myself and didn't give myself permission to sort of pursue the things that i wanted to do but then once i came out then that sort of like put me on the path of being able to sort of like no i want to i want to i want to act i want to perform i i want to continue to write and that's the path i've walked since that time that's interesting when you said you found it conflicting or limiting what kind of professions were you had you considered that you thought you could no longer you could not do as a uh, a gay man it's 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 not that I felt that I couldn't do them. It's just that I didn't have the confidence in myself to think that I could do it. Gotcha. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I stopped believing in myself because I, at that point in time, I wasn't happy with my, me. I felt bad about me. And I didn't give myself sort of permission or the space to pursue the things that I wanted for a myriad of reasons. It's It's a tricky, it's a tricky time, but... You know, like that's the the process of coming out is foundational for for everyone who has to do it. Now, that confidence did it come entirely internally, or did it was there external help to get to help you um, move in that direction? Uh, in that direction, I'm probably I'm not asking the question correctly, but I'm, I'm doing my best. <laughs> no, no, all good. I, I had help. I had certainly help externally through friends and, and a support network that sort of when I started to talk about it, there was lots of affection and support there. But, you know, confidence really has to come from inside. And so, you know, once I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm kind of I'm amazing, you know, then you, yeah. then you start to be like, okay, yeah, I can do the things that I want to do. I, I belong on that stage. I belong on that screen, you know? So when you finally made the decision to pursue performing and writing, did mm-hmm. you go for classical? I mean, were you classically trained? Did you go to college for that? Did you use, was acting a backup plan or, I mean, did you have a, did you have another plan just in case for acting? How did that work? I didn't have another plan. I knew my relationship with creativity has always been very intimate and intuitive and and very intense. So in, in university, I studied fine arts and I, I I looked at poetry and and fiction and playwriting and performance. And then I, I, so I gave myself a really good foundation about like sort of like the history of art and also started to understand myself as an artist because I was also writing and, you know, like working through my own feelings by writing like three chord folk songs filled with angst. And, <laughs> And, you know, we all go through that period. Yes, we do. 
and I'm proud of those songs. And so as I, as I, you know, as I started down, there was never a B plan. It was always like, I have to be a creative person and I'm beginning to understand the ways in which I can be a creative person and the ways in which that I feel sort of inspired and compelled to express it. It just, you just reminded me of my early days writing around the college time when I, I would write, you know, the emo poetry came out, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> God, I think I still have it somewhere in my parents' house and I never want oh. to read it again. <laughs> oh, no, that stuff, you know what? That stuff is gold because I can go back to those songs and I get to see the version of me who was writing them at that time. And I have a huge amount of affection for that, for that guy, because I'm using creativity to work through something. And they're, it's so distinctive when I look at that, when I look at sort of like that grouping of songs i'm clearly wrestling with something and i'm I'm working my way through it and it's very singular i i it's sometimes i i open up the book just to take a look at them because you know obviously i'm not that person that version of myself anymore yeah. but that guy is super important because that guy got me helped get me to where i am now now since you both perform as an actor and your experience as a writer does mm-hmm. writing which is I mean, writing is such a process of understanding psychology, understanding the psychology of your characters that you're creating, understanding yes. the creative process. Does mm-hmm. that help you understand your characters as an actor better as well? Yeah, you know, for me, it's it's very different, and it's there's a degree of similarity. When you're writing a character, you get a sense for the character. You get a sense of how the character would behave, how the character would talk, the kinds of words the character would use. And when you create a character as an actor, you get that same kind of a feeling about it. So so plumbing a character that you're going to write about and plumbing a character that you're going to perform, you take slightly different paths, but you're sort of, you're looking for those same answers. And often when I'm writing, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon for me to sort of sit in front of my computer and mutter and perform and gesture with my hands (laughs) as as I'm working, as I'm summoning the characters. And, you know, I had a, I had a roommate for a few years and, he got very used to the fact that you'd hear sobbing from the next room and he'd rush in and there I am, you know, in front of the computer, you know, working through this stuff. And yeah, so it's a, it's a similar and different process, but I feel like they complement each other and it's, they've both strengthened my abilities as an artist. Yeah. I, I totally understand where you're going on that area. I, I, I'm also, I, I do writing as well, not at uh, probably the level that you, that you do writing ever. But and, and I will say I will not write when my wife is in the house because I know I have to like walk around the house muttering yes. the lies. I have to, you know, try to like if, if I can't come up with the right line, I just start gesticulating as much as humanly possible until the line hits me. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. I love that because there's an I mean, I I firmly believe and have sort of like experienced in my own creative practice, sort of like the the muses and inspiration as something that exists outside of myself. And all of that gesticulation and all of that walking around helps helps you pay attention to, to the thing that you need to hear, right? For that little bolt of inspiration. I love all of yes. that stuff. <laughs> There's a deliciousness to the process of writing, which doesn't get discussed a lot because, you know, not a lot of people want to talk about process, Yeah, but it's, everyone's got a different approach, but I, I love the, I love being in the wilds of something when I'm writing it. It's uh 
it's a solo journey and it's it's always surprising. Yeah, it, it is interesting. People talk about writers as, you know, sit at your desk, and you're just typing along. I'm like, no, you're a writer. You're you're walking around, you're oh, you're, yeah. you're shouting lines and, and trying to shout the line that makes the most, you know, that comes out the best off, you know, and you try to feel it like like in your mouth. How does it sound coming out of your mouth when you say it? Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, you know when the wrong when you know when when you're about to write a line you and you hear yourself say it you know when you're not using the right line exactly my favorite my favorite thing is when i'm writing a a, a line for someone a character and i'll just use a word that i just don't use yeah that i'm not very familiar with but i'll use a word and then I have to sort of, once I finish writing that section, I'll go back and just look up that word just to confirm that that word is appropriate. And it always is. Yes. And I love that because then I feel like I'm listening to what the character is telling me. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm hearing the character and I'm using language that isn't my own. And I love that. That always gets me very excited I, because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing it. Exactly. It's this sort of, it almost feels like there's this other voice in your head that pops out at the right time. Yeah. And yeah. that happens to me all the time. My vocabulary, when, when I'm speaking to someone or, you know, just regular talking, I will recognize that there'll be a lot, I've also get stuck in words and think, I can't think of the right word. But when I'm writing, the words I don't remember that I even know sometimes just pop out. And like you said, they're usually always either right exactly what I want it to mean or very close. And that actually makes me wonder, is that meaning better than what I originally intended for it. And, it, yep. and it's amazing how that works. Yeah, yeah. And you got to pay attention to that process and understand it because that's, that's like, as I say, everyone is, has kind of, everyone works differently. But as soon as you sort of get a handle on how you work and what your process is like, you can assist yourself by understanding those cues and trusting those cues. And that's huge too. And the thing, when you're acting, right? Because you are mm -hmm. also a writer, Mm -hmm. Can you tell when you're reading dialogue for yourself when, that when a writer either didn't quite nail it the way it was supposed to, or sometimes as a writer, especially if you're trying to hit a deadline, you go with good enough sometimes. Do you sometimes hear it and go, the writer got, got stuck here. I can tell yes. they did. And maybe I can understand either why they got stuck or maybe I should, at this is a good moment to say, let's do it this way instead. I... I have great respect for the creative process and and for writers. So if it's if I'm in a in a position of like being in a play and I, I get hit with a line that I'm convinced that the character wouldn't say, I'll often table an alternate as like, oh, I how would this work? Especially mm. if I'm working with the writer on the play and see if there's a, and sometimes those discussions bears fruit. And sometimes it's like, no, you really need just to say the line as written. And then you sort of make the concessions you need to make to say that line as is. I always try to go in with an open heart and not to judge the material and, mm. and figure out what my path through it is going to be. But there. you can usually, often I think you can hear, especially if you do experience writing because you happen to you as well, can hear it when another writer you could tell either got stuck on something or mm -hmm. because they couldn't think of what they wanted to say. They, they kind of do like a, you'd write like a longer, more rambling line, hoping that you hit the note eventually in your writing. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I, I imagine you probably have a better ear for that than maybe other actors who don't have the background in writing as well. Oh, I think, I think certainly writing and, and writing good dialogue gives you a handle on, on good dialogue. And so if you have to 
if you have to come up with a line in a rehearsal, I mean, certainly you have a skill set to bring to the table that is hugely valuable and you can be an asset, especially in indie theater where I've spent most of my time because usually the playwright is in the room with you with the director and everyone's working together. So certainly hitting, hitting the boards as a, as an actor who's also a writer gives you an advantage, but also sometimes it's really good to leave the writer at the door and just let the actor do their work. Mm. So do you think sometimes that's interesting. It sounds like sometimes your own knowledge is almost intrusive in the acting process. Is it because you're thinking too hard about it? Yeah. Sometimes you can get in your way. Like you have to, you, for me, I mean, and I, again, like there's no one way, but for me, there's, if, if I've come up against a line that doesn't feel right for whatever reason, I'll discuss it. If, if it feels like the room would be open to it, if Mm. there is sort of a, a spirit of give and take in the room and, and if I'm working with like open, generous people, there's some great discussions that have happened. Yeah, why don't we say it like this? Or why don't we do it this way? Oh, that's great. You know, and it becomes a yes and situation as opposed to if you question some people, if you question a line of dialogue, then they get their back up and think that you're commenting on the work. And it's like, it's not about that. It's about, you know, trying to make it as, as good as it can be. Now, so it's like, read the room <laughs> <laughs> and figure out the best, the, the best way forward. Now, when one of your earliest performances that you did was for a show called Star Fuckery. Yes, um, that was a show that I, that was one of my solo shows. Now, is it because you did have the experience as a solo performance, did it, was it difficult to then join more an ensemble, not ensemble cast, but ensemble experience? Oh, absolutely. No, I, my solo work, I love working solo. I, I love the sort of solo shows that I have, I have written and performed, but I also really enjoy working with people and being a part of an ensemble. So it's, it's exciting to have another, to be working with other actors and, and get to sort of like riff off them instead of riffing off the audience. So it's, it's, again, it's like same pleasure, different muscle. So for our listeners, what is Starfuckery and what inspired it? Starfuckery is a show I wrote about my 17 years working at the Toronto International Film Festival. I, I worked the festival in various capacities, but ended up running one of the biggest red carpets and managing a couple of the big venues. So it was just about, the show was about the shenanigans and just the absurdities of red carpet life and all of the crazy encounters that I had with celebrities and the public and the unbelievable situations that that I bore witness to. So it was, it was sort of like the greatest hits of those 17 years. Oh, that's amazing. Because when, when I was, once again, doing research, I was looking through Star, uh, what Star Fuckery was. The right. list of celebrity names was extensive. And I was wondering, and my first thought was, this has to be nonfiction. I mean, it has to be fiction because obviously no one, you know, I, I didn't imagine, you know, people would know that many, you know, huge celebrities. Right. And Oh, no, my friend. It's all real. It's 100% real. Yeah, I, I tend to get weird jobs. That seems to be uh, something that's in my wheelhouse. And so working the, working the red carpet and running the venue was has certainly... I had, an, I had an amazing time doing it. It was very punishing in a number of ways, but hilarious and exciting. And I had some super memorable encounters with people. 
So I had to, I felt necessary to purge that experience via a, a comedy show about life on the red carpet. And one of the people that you mentioned is Faye Dunaway, who you said oh, yes. had a huge impact on your life. Yeah. In what way? The Faye Dunaway story is 20 minutes long. I can't. Like a two minute shotgun version. There, you know, it, it re- there really isn't because it's like, it's like this epic story that, that just, you know, I don't know that I could do it in two minutes. I'm also very practiced in telling it in the 20 minute version. So I'd, I'd really have to bear down. It was when I think about all of the insanity and the absurdity and the excitement and the wow of working the film festival and what film festival life is, the Faye Dunaway encounter really kind of, it it sort of like encapsulated all of my experience. I also am a, I'm a huge Faye Dunaway fan. So there, there was, there was a lot going on that day, but she's a, she's a marvel. And it was, when I think about that experience, the, the Faye Dunaway day is always a story I, I lean, lean, lean on if people have 20 minutes when they're like, what is it like working at film festival? And I'll just tell them that story. Well, the, I'm sorry. I can't. Oh, you know, well, I, I was going to say there is no time limit on the podcast. If you want to uh, go for 20, <laughs> I have time, but I, but, but that's not, but we'll go on you. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's do, let's, let's, let's be track focused. And at the end, if we've still got life, I will tell you the Faye Dunaway story. Okay. That's fantastic. Are you going to ever go back to the stage? Yes. Do you have a plan for that already? No. I, you know, right now it's really hard to know what, what is going to, what theater is going to look like and what stages are going to look like and, and when we'll have access to those places again. But I feel like anybody who is an artist right now or who misses theater or who's you know, or, or, and the artists who are missing theater and they're feeling like right now it's very easy to feel like abandoned or lost because as artists, we don't have the things that we normally have access to. I just like, for me, what I keep thinking about is that like the moment that a cast full of people gets to perform for an audience for the first time, it is going to be a kinetic explosion. It will Mm be being on the stage will be so remarkable and being in the audience will be so remarkable. And before the pandemic, I was working on a new solo show and I've been working on it throughout the pandemic. So once I have access to a stage again, I will be certainly going back to the stage to talk about a few things. And I look very forward to that. I, I, I love storytelling and the relationship with the audience as you tell a story. It, it must, I mean, I, I almost don't always consider the difficulty for actors at times like the, in times like the lockdown, because someone like myself who's already insular, um, introverted to begin with, I don't mind this. To me, this is kind of like vacation. But someone like who, who is used to that crowd, I assume that energy, I, I kind of, the, the analogy that popped in my head is sort of like Superman and the yellow sun kind of absorbs it. And, mm-hmm. and I assume that energy of a crowd must be like, that kind of energy or food for someone such as yourself who does enjoy performing. Absolutely. And you miss it. I mean, I, I'm an introvert. 
I'm an introvert who displays as an extrovert. So as much as I like being on stage and being around people, I also like my alone time. And this, this is, this, this time has been good for alone time. There's been a lot of it, but I also really miss interrupting my solo time with being social and, and performing. And so performers who are not only full extroverts, but also love performing. I think those people are missing very much that relationship and that energy exchange. And, you know, like I've, I've been seeing a lot of posts from artists lately, you know, talking about how everyone's sort of feeling lost and, and, and pretty low about the situation. But I do like, I, just think about how sensational it's going to be to be back on stage and for people to be in the audience enjoying what they're seeing on stage. It's going to be really remarkable and we'll get there. It's just, uh, we have to pace ourselves for sure. I, I, I do hope you're correct. It, it does feel like we have a tendency to, or at least right now, to keep punishing ourselves by doing what is incorrect, which is making this prolonged <laughs> much further mm-hmm. than I think anyone intended. But mm-hmm. I, I think there's... People talk about, you know, movie theaters, what's going to happen in the future, stage and things of that nature. But I would imagine the hunger for that catharsis is probably quite strong. It's huge. And remember, art has endured all kinds of tragedies and interruptions and disruptions. Art has persevered and artists will persevere. That's what artists do, whether they know it or not. Do you know what I mean? So there will be so many exciting stories to to enjoy and and watch no matter, like across all kinds of things it's just going to take a little bit of time to sort of to get there but i am hopeful i agree i mean we survived spanish influenza it survived the bubonic plague i'm just going to survive mm-hmm. covid hundred <laughs> percent mm-hmm. so can you also tell our listeners what the writer's block show is i know it played in canada is it anywhere available as well in the united states you can find it, I believe you can find it on YouTube internationally, but it's it's on the CBC streaming website in Canada called Gem. The Writer's Block it was a digital series that I, I worked on with a friend of mine named uh, Matt Watts, and he's a Toronto actor and writer. And we had just both gotten news that s- stuff that we'd been working on got turned down. And so we were both feeling pretty dejected. And... And we were on the phone and we said, we should just do something. Let's just do something that doesn't depend on a network saying yes, or a gatekeeper giving us, you know, some cash. Let's just do something for us. And so we looked at what we had, which wasn't a lot, you know, and we said, what are our limitations? Well, we have no money. (laughs) uh, And so we're going to write a show. And we came up with a scenario about three writers in a room writing a show that they don't like. (laughs) And so we came up with this idea of that they were writing the show called Somerset Isle, which is a show about mummies on an island off the coast of BC. And in the end, so we shot like a 10 episode season super independently on our own in this storeroom over a comic book store (laughs) and over three days. And I had gotten a thousand dollars of investor money to do this. I found an investor who was willing to come on board and and give us a thousand dollars, which basically paid for our sound equipment. And we shot it. 
And it turned out really well. And we took it to the CBC, which is the national broadcaster here. And the CBC were intrigued and they watched the they watched the show and then they they greenlit a digital season. So then we did a, a digital season with them for their streaming arm. And and so that's what that is. So in 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 the sort of the super rough indie season, it's us pitching the show. And in the in the CBC season, it's that the show is shooting and they are writing the show. And so the room is nicer and the outfits are better and it looks, <laughs> it looks slicker. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's an extremely meta idea. Did you find yourselves basically as you're doing the process of writing the show, come mm -hmm. up with ideas for the character? Because obviously whatever issues you have in writing this, the show is mm -hmm. similar to, I assume, the fictional characters trying to come up with ideas as well. So were you, yes. was that almost like a, a, like a cycle of writing and then the ideas are from the show as well? Well, we, we based the characters that we played on ourselves. So like my character was named David, Matt's character was named Matt, and the third character was played by Aurora Brown, who uh, is on the Baroness Von Sketch show, which is a show that's gotten popular in the States. And she played a version of herself called Aurora. So when we were writing the characters, we knew we were writing kind of versions of us. And so we, we could send ourselves up a bit and sort of like, so when we were mining for character beats, it was really sort of like sending it was easier because we knew it was about us in this situation just like weird versions of us does that make sense no, you know yeah I mean? no, no i get exactly what you mean because you are writing it kind of about yourselves on some level or let's say a, a, maybe a slight parody of yourselves mm -hmm. was there any kind of com competition to make sure that your version of yourself is the primary or funnier version than the other people who are playing themselves no, we're, we worked really well together as a team. So everyone has great funny moments. Everyone has dramatic moments. Like everyone, everyone spurred, we all spurred each other to, to be better and be faster and, and, and be funnier. And so there was, it was a very cooperative and sort of like affectionate shoot because we all, no one was trying to dominate. We all were working together to make something magic happen. And on and on the show, you're you're like I said, an actor, a writer, an executive producer. Mm -hmm. Was that must have been? I mean, at what? I wore a lot of hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did, did the weight of that ever get to you? You know what? It's weird. That experience, my experience working the film festival for all those years, kind of prepared me for the experience of doing all of those things because I can I can think in it in a very compartmentalized way. And so I had as much put to bed and organized by the time we started shooting that I could sort of hand things over to the director and, and the producer and say, okay, I've done all of this work and all of this prep and everything is organized. And now I'm going to hand the reins over to the director and tomorrow I'm going to show up as an actor and do my job. And so it was, uh, that, that was my approach. And I worked incredibly hard to do it. And it was, I mean, I, I have to say, I did a great job because it was a really smooth shoot. So, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, was it ever almost like multiple personality disorder where you're like, as the executive producer, going like, 
the fucking writer had a great idea, but I can't afford that. <laughs> Son of a bitch. You know, I can't no, put no, that kind no. of money in here. <laughs> no, everyone, like the when the scripts were written, we all we all saw them. We all we all knew, we all agreed on what it was. Everything was prepared and organized and and vetted before we started shooting. So I could show up and be an actor and not have to worry about anything budgetary or anything extraneous. It was all there ready to go. So it was so there was, yeah, was, there was no moments where you as a writer had a good line that maybe you as an actor thought, you know, it was when you time to perform, you're like, eh, I don't know if as an actor, this is something I want to do. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, as an actor in the room, sometimes we would riff with each other and be like, hey, that's even better than what the what's written. So let's just improvise and let's do this line instead. Uh, and there was the freedom to do that. But look, I'm not going to write a clunker line for myself. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make sure I, I, I write only the best. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess my, my thought is that there's some th lines that sound better on paper than when you have to, I assume when you maybe have to say them verbally out loud, you think that's a tough line to come oh, out with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the, the joy of working with talented people is you can rehearse the scene and then have that moment where you're like, oh yeah, this line isn't going to work. And then you quickly improvise the solution or someone will have a great idea and you're like, oh great, that fixes it. You know, and, and sometimes writing is about listening as much as, you know, sometimes you don't have all the right answers as a writer. Sometimes someone else will have a great idea and you just have to sort of be open that you aren't going to have all the answers. That's another important rule to writing, I believe. Did you find yourself writing mostly yourself, your own character, or was it e as easy to you to write the other people's characters as it was your own? Easy to write for everybody. Oh, okay. I think when you have when you have a when you have a sense like these these people are good friends of mine. So when you have a sense of how these people are, it's very easy to write for them. That's that's really cool. So Writer's Block was on for two seasons. You said it is a, it's probably available somewhere in the states. <sighs> Yes, I think you can access the CBC season via YouTube. And then somewhere else on YouTube is our little like super indie season. And I think it's in it lives in its own dark corner of YouTube. <laughs> I, <don't know>. so, <laughs> I think you have to dig around to find it. But yeah, I believe you can access it. I should find that out for you. I'll find that out for you. So, so to my listeners, you heard it first from David Benjamin Tomlinson. Go to the dark spaces of YouTube and see what you find. <laughs> oh my God, I'm not saying that at all. Do not stay away from the dark spaces of YouTube. That place is terrifying. Uh, so eventually you obviously started working with Dark Trek Discovery and you played mm -hmm. something like 10 different characters on, on that show. Is that, is that even close to being accurate? Oh, let's see. Three Klingons in season one. And then season two was Linus and Kelpian. And then there were four, four characters in season three. So that me that makes four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh wow! Okay, so oh no, there were three characters. Oh no! Oh, you know what? I should I should know. I this is actually something I should know. <laughs> <laughs> And it's weird that I don't. In season two, there was Linus, and then there was the Kelpian. So maybe it is just so it's three, two, four. So what does that make? Nine. Uh, nine. Right, so, so nine. So you, so you got to do one more for the, for double digits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one more, one more character for double digits, and then for sure, then you can punch out that tenth hole and you get like a free steak or something. <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping for like a fun like party hat or a badge or a sticker. 
Yeah, we'll see. That, that, that's got to be, you got to question the genetics of Star Trek, where ten, nine different characters all have a similar genetic of being David Benjamin Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all very different. They're all very different. So it's been a very, how would I describe it? It's been an exciting, uh, the, the opportunity to jump into all of these different skins and spend time in them, even briefly. There's something really interesting about being in a character skin very briefly and something equally as interesting and different about being in a character skin in an ongoing, an ongoing way. Like I'm now, obviously Linus is, is the, the key character that, that I've been playing now. I've spent the most time as him and I, I love that character. And there's something really exciting about, you know, seeing when he comes back and what he's up to. And, and, and for me, he's gotten, he continues to get clear, but there's something very exhilarating and sudden about just being in a character skin for a day and finding something and then doing that. And then, and then it's over. So I, I had interviewed Patrick uh, Kwakchun about three weeks ago. I love Patrick. Yes. And, and he verified that season four is shooting right now. Mm-hmm. So before we get too deep into the into the weeds, does <laughs> Linus possibly may show up in an episode of season four? I don't know what I can or cannot say about season four. Hey, if you're busy right now, perhaps on a show <laughs> that may exist in the, of the sci-fi franchise. <laughs> I. What did Patrick say? Did Patrick say anything about season um, four? Patrick said, I'm trying to remember going back what Patrick said. He said it is shooting. He it does yeah. appear in it. And yeah. he'll let me know when it airs. Okay. It is shooting. <laughs> I'll let you know when it airs. And I guess this will be okay. And Linus is in it. Fantastic. See, that's what that's we're hoping for. Because <laughs> I must say, it, 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 it is um, amazing that um, considering if you add all the Linus green time, it's obviously not a whole lot in bulk. But his scenes are some of the most memorable of the entire seasons two and three. Ah, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I certainly have a blast playing those moments. It's 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 a very interesting, very interesting experience to kind of arrive and do something specific and and leave. And yeah, he's I I I have a huge I have huge, huge affection for that character i love playing him now of, very much of all the characters you named have you played a character where you're not under quite a bit of makeup no i've only played prosthetic characters on the show does does would the actors recognize you that are that you play on star trek discovery because <laughs> oh the actors yeah everyone all the actors have seen my face there are people that i work with though that have it that i work really? very closely with that some of the crew because you know, like I'll get to set and I go right to my trailer and get into my sort of transformation clothes and then go to the prosthetics trailer. And and op- often I'm there very early before a lot of people because my call time is like two hours earlier than everyone because of the prosthetics. So I don't see a lot of people. And I had a very interesting experience last year where I I got to set for a table read of an episode. And well, why was I, 
well, I can't remember. I, I went over to say hello to someone on set and I saw a couple of the crew members who I work with and interact with every time I'm there. Yeah. And I walked up to them and I was like, hi. And they looked at me completely confused. <laughs> and then I realized, oh yeah, I know their face, but they have no idea who I am. And I said, it's David, <laughs> you know, Linus. And they were like, what? And I'm like, I know. And then we had this big hug and it was like weirdly emotional because <laughs> They had worked with me for like two years and never seen my face. And so that's, so it's a bit of a man of mystery, so, I guess. So when you're under some of these prosthetics and people may not know that you're David Benjamin while you're in those prosthetics. Just, you can just call me David. David. Benjamin is my, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do, do you ever just go up to the people who may not recognize you and be like, you know, just, you know, you may be wondering, but uh, that actor I saw, David, David Benjamin <laughs> Tomlinson, he's really good. You got to put him in way more shit. <laughs> just if you're wondering, that's just you something I should throw out there. It's like what Gandalf said, with great power comes great respons responsibility. Yes. And I, I, I like to be responsible with my power. So I don't, <laughs> I don't prank anyone or use that power against anyone. I, well, that's I, like, I, I like to play it uh, fair and square. Well, you're a nicer person than I would probably. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, were you a fan of Star Trek prior to joining the Discovery show? Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up uh, a bit of a a geek or nerd, you know, like, so when I, when I was growing up in the country, I watched Doctor Who. I was a Doctor Who guy for many years. Tom Baker was my doctor and, and none of my friends watched it. And I didn't understand the legacy of that show and uh, sort of the bigger picture of what that show was. And when Tom Baker regenerated, I was so confused. I didn't know why that had happened. I did not care for Peter Davidson at the time because I was sort of like, Where, where's my doctor? What happened? Yep. And I found out years later. So I went from Doctor Who to The Next Generation. Ooh, uh, okay. And that was, you know, Star Wars as a kid. Yeah. Uh, and then Doctor Who. And and so Star Trek Next Generation was the show that I grew up with. That was the show that was that was sort of my time. And then I dabbled in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But sort of like TNG was so sort of like it hit the hit all the right notes for me. So it was I've always enjoyed that the Star Trek universe for sure. Well, I would say now that Deep Space Nine is on streaming, I would definitely revisit that show. Mm -hmm. it, it works so much better as a streamed show, as a, something you can binge watch than it does as a episodic, about weekly episode. Because you can watch things in more immediate vicinity to each other. Like it, you can watch like yeah, it's in, it's incredibly ser serialized. So a lot of what you would miss probably as in a weekly format works very well as something you can just you know drive right through. Right. So right. I, uh, that's my pitch. G Space Nine, definitely check that out. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I need a winter viewing project because it's going to be, you know, we're still, we're in a, a stay-at-home situation here for a, a while longer. So maybe I will uh, embark on a journey and take in some Deep Space Nine. And, and I, was, I certainly love that cast a lot. Oh, there, there is a tremendous cast. My only thing I would usually point out, and I said the same thing to Patrick because he said he didn't watch Deep Space Nine. The first two seasons are rough. You got to get mm -hmm. to season three and where it starts kind of figuring it out who it wants to be. And then the show right. really takes off. When, when does Louise Fletcher show up? 
Uh, she shows up as a diplomat or something, right? Like it gets into the Bajoran politics for oh, a while. Yes, I'm trying to, is that? I'm trying to remember which one she is. Give me one. I know the character, probably don't know the name off, off the top of my head. Right, that's the actor's name. Louise Fletcher is is that the? She's she oh, was like a Bajoran politician or a a high priest or something. Oh, I okay. I think I know which one you're talking about. Give me one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just looking up real quick. Oh, there we are. Oh shit! Yes, I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> she she is uh, don't get me wrong she's a, ph- a phenomenal actor actress but right. everyone who knows star trek anyone who knows all these uh, series will always put her down as the most hateful hated character not, not because she's not a, a great actress or a great character but because mm-hmm. she's so, she's so swarmy and <laughs> she's so swarmy <laughs> oh yeah no i i remember the character is not a likable character but she's really good playing oh it. she's she's absolutely tremendous she like I said, when I say everyone does, hey, I, like I said, the act because she's so good at being so despicable. Yeah, she is. Yeah, you know, she has that tendency, but she she is she, she is phenomenal. I'm trying to remember what her, the character's name is, but um, no, she's like the, the religious figurehead, and she does it. Yeah, that's so right. well. She does it so well, and I would easily argue that she's far more of a villain than Goldicott. <laughs> far more of a villain. <laughs> <laughs> And so what, so does she show up after the first couple of seasons? Like, does it say when she, I think, I think she shows up around season two. She was in Kai wins the character, right? Kai win Kai win. Okay. And yeah, but like I said, she, she does such a good job and she does really well with Nana Vizzer as well. They interact very well together, but it it, is a fantastic. And I think very ballsy insight into religion that Star Trek normally doesn't hit on. But the way she handles the role is just she, she's phenomenal in that role. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I mean, I, I like I like Louise as a as a performer. So I loved watching her on that show. That's that's one of the things from that show that I remember. I'm like, ah, but I maybe it's time for a rewatch. I, I would highly recommend it. Like I said, be tolerant for the first two years when they're still. The first two years are still thinking that the next generation where they're kind of right. a little more subdued. And then around season three, season four, they kind of just realize on some level that this show exists away from kind of like the, the constraints a little bit of the Federation. They start getting a little deeper into the world and the politics and the religious aspects and the cost of war and all that other stuff. And then it just takes off. It's phenomenal at that point. You know, I, I have to admit, I do love watching a show figure itself out. Like it, it's like you're watching an organic creative process as everyone starts to really understand the show. It was like that with Buffy after season one, you could sort of see something come into focus in season two and it hit season three and it hit its stride. And it was, it's so exciting to see a show come into its own like that. Yeah. And sometimes we expect that the, like for a big show like that, you have to know who you are out of the gate. And sometimes that's not what we think it's going to be. And I love when time is given for shows to figure themselves out. I would say the secret to D space nine to, mm-hmm. to recognize when it starts discovering itself is Avery Brooks. The, the less hair he has on his head, the more he has on his face, <laughs> it starts getting better. <laughs> oh my God. Has someone written an article about that? That would probably be an amazing sort of like, like an article online, you could like pictures and evidence. That's that's fantastic. Okay, thank you for that. I will I will remember that. Yeah. So just watch the placement of hair. The and as like say, as it moves on his on his on his head, it actually right. the show actually starts improving and figuring itself out a little bit. So okay, that's the thank key. You. I love that. <laughs> I love that. All right. So going back to discovery just a little bit. So <laughs> once again, going back to Linus, who is a yes. Sor- a Sorian, uh, Sorian, Sorian, yeah. who 
before has only, I think, had a minor appearance in the motion picture Star Trek movie. Yep, way in the back in a scene in the motion picture with a very different looking makeup, played by Cedric Toporco, I believe, was the actor's name who played the very first Saurian. So my my hat is always off to Cedric. Did, did you watch that to prepare for Linus or? No, I... I, I, I looked at the picture and I was like, woo. And then I did a reading about Saurians and of course the brandy and the, the they have four hearts. Uh, and then I started watching a lot of reptilian and lizard reference videos just to sort of see the different ways that they exhibited their physicality. And as we got close to, once I saw the prosthetic for the first time, that was, so I sort of did my my research and my sort of like, you know, actory investigation before seeing the prosthetic and then seeing the prosthetic, I walked into the prosthetics trailer and it was sitting on the counter and just like the most beautiful piece of art. And I was like, Oh my goodness, is this, is this him? And that when, you you know, wearing a mask, always uh, you get a lot of information about, you know, uh, a character when you get to wear a prosthetic, there's a lot of information in the shape of the face and tuning into all of that. And I actually had a really interesting moment with discovering Linus. I I was very, very excited and stoked to play the character and loved the prosthetic. And everyone was, you know, everyone loved the look of it. And everyone was very excited about the character. And, and I started to realize the closer I got to shooting that, that suddenly that this was going to be canon, right? This, it was going to be going into this thing called, you know, canon that was going to be referenced. And I was suddenly very distracted with this idea that I had to get it right. And I worked with a movement coach leading up to the shoot. And we talked about, you know, the physicality and I talked with Doug about it. And the night that we shot his first appearance, which was the elevator sneezing scene, I was really stressed out. I had completely uh, drifted into overthinking and was sort of like very preoccupied at this idea that I had to do this right. And it had to, you know, blah, 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 all all of the sort of like ways that we can sort of like get in our own way. And uh, we were rehearsing the scene and we, I hadn't talked with the director about the noise that he was going to make, but I had prepared a noise for when, you know, Sonequa asked, oh, you know, how's your throat? And he sort of makes the gurgle. And so in the rehearsal, she walked in the elevator and, and, and said the line and asked about the throat. And then I made the gesture and I made the sound. And then her eyes kind of good out of her head. And she was like, oh, no, it's going to be a long night with this one. And everyone started laughing. And then Doug, you know, patted me on the back. And, and suddenly there was so much levity in that elevator. And in, in that moment of levity and laughter, which is, you know, I'm used to getting laughs on stage. Like I, I, come, I came out of comedy. So in that moment, I just heard this voice. I felt this energy and it was sort of like, you know, oh, you know, I know what this is. I've got this. And it was kind of Linus. And he, and like, and that, that, that sort of laughter and that sort of like moment of fun sort of broke the overthinking. And then I just trusted the work that I had done and what, how I had prepared and the mask, and then just leaned into what that energy was you know, talking about finding a character and like when you hear a character, when you're writing. And that was this instance where I just felt the character come in. And now I trust that 100%. Now, now the interest, interesting thing about playing a character like Linus with the prosthetics is that one of the primary tools of an actor is the face. 
Mm-hmm. Most of the communication between an actor and the audience is portrayed through the facial expressions, the, the physical body language of, of you know the face. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, being a prosthetic kind of robs you of that expression of the face. So, what kind of thing did you learn about acting to compensate for that? Well, part of the part of the journey of the prosthetics, part of the prosthetics journey is is figuring that out and unlocking that for yourself. And with Linus, it comes down to these very specific head tilts, you know, the diff, feeling the difference between an inquisitive head tilt. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm tilting my head right now. As I talk <laughs> this. No worries. Uh, you know, uh, feeling the difference and, and, you know, like an inquisitive head tilt versus a, a thoughtful head tilt, you know, the use of the hands, because the other thing that's important to remember is the mask doesn't stop at the neck, right? The mask goes all the way mm. to the feet. So the full body is engaged. The hands behave in a way. So there's a, there's a fig- physical language that's avail- available to you. So yeah, you're robbed of your 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 usual toolbox, but you're handed this other toolbox of your full body physicality and tone of voice to to discover all that stuff. Now, also with with Linus, one of the major aspects of Linus as well are his eyes, right? Yes. And yes. is that controlled externally to you? Do you have a way? Are you controlling how the eyes are blinking and everything else? No, I am. One of my favorite things about Linus is one, those eyes are always open when I am performing. Like they're just, there's no lids on them. And those eye blinks are added by the the amazing artists in post. And so I never know when they're going to put in the eye blinks or how they're going to put in the eye blinks, but they always do it in a way which kind of builds on what I'm doing. And so I love that he's kind of at this intersection of prosthetic and actor and CGI and all of these. And then the, the, the ADR artists who are modulating the voice and all of these artists working together to, to make this character come to life. So I love, it's exciting for me that there are aspects to his performance that I'm not in control of, that I get to enjoy with everyone else when I, when I look back and watch it. And I love the work that the post the post people do. Do they ever come for your input and ask in this moment, you know, uh, like what were you thinking, feeling, or anything that we should do here? No, I think it's. I think I think the, my performance is pretty clear, and then they build on that. I certainly everything that they've done, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed. So. You know, I I trust them to do their work just like they trust me to do mine. And I'd love to me. I'd like to get the whole everyone who's involved with Linus. <laughs> I would like to get them all together at one point, just so we could take a picture together and and you know, like we are Linus kind <laughs> of a thing. Well, if if you ever want to do a a special Linus episode, they are all welcome to come on the show, and we, <laughs> and we can do like a whole <laughs> Linus special. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing! It's it's you know it's. It, it, I, you know, selfishly, it's, 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 it, I also get to enjoy it more because I'm seeing things for the first time, right? When I look at the show, when I watch the show and I'm seeing these eye blinks and sometimes because I, I really don't get a lot of movement out of the top half of his face. And so sometimes they'll, they'll just like CGI, like one of his eyebrow ridges a little bit and just give it a bit of movement. Like it's all, there's always stuff that I get to see and enjoy. It's not, gives me something to focus on. 
uh, that is uh, like a nice surprise. And like I said, and I think what, what, what I love about the character of Linus, he feels to me in many ways, like if you, if, you know, like in a Shakespearean play where in the middle of all these tense moments, he injects that humor that kind of releases that kind of tension a little bit and mm-hmm. allows the rest of the, you know, and kind of allows the tension to build back up again. And I think he's the humor that he injects is so perfect in that show. It's so and it's so necessary, I think, to to show that sometimes does feel very self serious. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the show is tackling a lot of serious issues, so it's certainly it's certainly very fun to get to be the person that comes in and breaks that energy up or inserts a bit of unexpected, you know, distraction and sort of breaks the mood. I certainly my this season three, my hats are off to the writers who you know, who gave him those great moments to sort of be around and, and, and show up and, and give everyone a smile. Yeah. That the, I, I will say my favorite Linus moment is the teleporter moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. so hilarious and they're so unexpected when they happen that I, like I said, it, it's almost w- worth watching an entire um, season of just Linus or, you know, <laughs> teleporting to the wrong place at different random moments. <laughs> Yeah, I loved I loved that I love that little story. I love that he perseveres, you know, like he's he's not bothered. He just keeps trying. There's it, those scenes were incredibly fun to play and they were all very different and I was really grateful for those moments and given that they were broadcast at a time when, you know, everything seemed very serious, it was like in the world, the world seemed very serious. Mm. There was a lot of like, oh, you know, Linus gave everyone a laugh today. And that was a really wonderful feeling. And I was grateful that I could sort of, you know, uh, share a bit of light and bright in, in, in the day. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, I love discovery and I think Linus is the, the best like, unexpected, you know, insert into the uh, series. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm certainly, I am certainly having a blast playing him and I, I, you know, I will. We'll see what happens next. the The great thing about this journey is it's it's been constant constant surprises. So we'll see what happens. And and, and once again, the nice thing about CBS Access they they're introducing Stranger Worlds. They're introducing Section Thirty One. Mm-hmm. Why not mm-hmm. a thirty minute Linus sitcom? Is, is all I'm saying. <laughs> you know it, it doesn't hurt anything, will it? <laughs> you know what? You're not the first person person to suggest this to me uh, <laughs> i don't know from your lips to the writer's ears i don't i don't i you know those decisions are being made way above my head i am i'm grateful to see where this road goes i'm grateful for the opportunity to see where this road goes i'm certainly having a tremendous amount of fun walking it as, as a comedic writer do you get to pitch ideas to the stuff and say hey we funny if linus did this oh no i keep my writer I keep my writer put away when I'm at work on 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 track. I if I get ins- an inspiration for something, I may talk to the director. But I, you you know, it's it's pretty clear what they what what he needs to do in a scene, and I'll just let the character do it. And often I'm not trying to be funny. I've, often you know, the, I'm not. Often I'm just doing what how the character is, and that's what's funny because he is very awkward. And I think we all recognize we all recognize that sort of like awkwardness and, and enjoy, enjoy it. Like people aren't laughing at Linus. We're laughing with him. And so when did you realize the character did catch on the way he had? Oh, I don't know. It's been a real gradual, been a real gradual sort of unfolding, but certainly there seemed to be a huge amount of like season two, everyone was aware of him, but season three, it seems like everyone really, 
really bonded with the character because he was around more, I guess. And so I guess I'm still in the middle of that moment of realizing that he's becoming extremely popular with fans. And, and that's, I'm trying to figure, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. That's exciting. That's humbling. Love that people enjoy him as much as I enjoy playing him. Like I said, I, and I really do think he's a, a, brush, uh, a breath of fresh air every time he shows up. Are you appearing at any virtual conventions or planning on what, appearing more event- conventions when this whole thing's over? Yes. I, this, the pandemic started last year would have been my first conventions. And so I did some virtual cons last summer. And this year, I mean, it's, it's, it's far away still, but I'm, I am sort of scheduled to go to the Las Vegas convention. Oh, wow. In August. But, you know, like we're gonna, like, obviously, that's what that's what it looks like now. And we'll see what it looks like when we get closer. But I certainly am very eager to, to meet with people and engage with people who love the show and, and love the character and have some real face time. Because when you're doing a virtual con, you don't see anybody but the people you're on the panel with. So it's like, yeah, I'm looking forward. I've heard from other cast members how special and remarkable the conventions are. So I'm I'm excited and curious to to experience that. Well, definitely attend a Northeast convention at some point. I definitely want your autographs. You got to head to either Rhode <laughs> okay. Island, Connecticut, or Boston. Any one of those, I will find you. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll find you any one of those. <laughs> I'll make a note. I will make a note. All right. Thank you so much, sir. You're fantastic to talk to. And once again, Linus is definitely one of my favorite characters on Discovery. Um, you, did, you, you do a fantastic job. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And thank you very much for having me. My, it's definitely my pleasure. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. I like it though. <laughs> it's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and oh my god are you a lover of comic books like we are and then there's so many so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com and i highly implore you to go there and check it out yeah and while you're there you can check out all the other podcasts on our network like bridges and geekdoms and funny book forensics and haphazard adventures and nerds in the crypt and so many more misery point radio episodes all the time misery point radio has got a ton of great stuff out there go check all of them out and Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash Or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, 
I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And we need more.